Well, good morning, glad you're here. Um, let me take a minute. Um, my heart's just heavy this morning. I wanna take a minute to pray for me <laughs> um, as we get started and you as well, uh, but just to go before the Lord and um, have his way. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. Father, there are times, I'll just be honest, where I don't wanna read your word. I don't wanna know what you have to say. It'd be easier just to, to pick topics that I would want, uh, that would encourage me, that would make me feel better um, about the circumstances either I'm in or I've created for myself. But Father, you love us enough to come alongside us, to tell us the truth, to walk us through the reality of the world we live in and the reality of the world that's going to come one day that you're going to bring. You desire for us to have a longing for that, and I praise you for it. Lord, I just pray for the confusion and hurt that our world is full of right now. Not that it hasn't been before, but right now it just seems so evident. Father, we, myself, we're your messengers to, to tell about who you really are. We're your messengers to communicate what's happened and to tell people about it, which is our series that we're going through. And Lord, help us not to hold back, but also help us not to be mean or rude, but to be full of your joy, your hope, your kindness, but also your boldness, your truth, your justice, and the reality of what your word has to say. And help us to wrestle with you like Jacob. And if we come out with a limp, help us to celebrate that you slowed us down enough so that we could not depend on ourselves, but depend on, on you. Lord, we thank you, we praise you this morning, even if we don't feel like it, because we don't have an option. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess and praise you, whether they want to or not. And I pray this morning, we would want to. We'd want to just bow before you, smile, thank you for what you've done, for what you've done for thousands of years and will continue to do and we can trust you to do. It's in your name, amen. Uh, we are in... First Chronicles and Second Samuel, uh, continuing in on our series of What Happened, Tell Me. And this book is laying that out. Uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about counting. Counting. Um, what do you like to count? Your money, your time, your shoes, right? M maybe you like to count how many Pokemon cards you have. M maybe you like to count how many tools you have. Maybe you would like to count how many hairs you don't have. Um, I mean, I, I don't know what it is, but we, we are a culture infatuated with counting, right? And we're in a position now where we don't even know what to believe because the counts, we don't know if they're right or not, right? I mean, it, it, it's all over the map, the information that we get. And and really what we're finding, which is what we're going to find in this passage that will be very helpful to us in the world we live in, and the information we're bombarded with constantly, is that it's very important to understand the why behind counting. Because if you don't understand the why, the numbers can always be manipulated. And they will always be manipulated to the benefit of the one that wanted things counted. That's science even today. Science decides we're going to study and count this, and there's somebody else doing an alternative study counting the opposite of that, and this, they're saying, no, 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 we don't want to hear that. I, 
I, no, sorry. We're, is it wrong to count? Nope. God counts in the Bible. He, he counts things. He counts the stars. Of the head. God knows where everything is. Everything's counted. He says every hair on our head is numbered. It's not wrong, but the question that we have to wrestle with, you, myself, and what we're going to see in this passage is we have to wrestle with our hearts and the heart behind the why we count. And if you don't wrestle with that, you're going to end up in a mess like we're going to see God's people end up. You know, everybody wants to rewrite history, recount history, give a, give a new accounting of history to the way they want it to fit. Sometimes that's the right thing to do because the people who wrote the history accounted for the way they wanted it to fit. What I love about God is that God just lays it all out and sometimes it's completely not for our benefit. You read it and you're like, I don't know if I still want to believe in this God. I, I don't know if I like this story and I like the God that this Bible is telling me about. And if this story doesn't do that to you or bother you, I don't know what story will. Because this one will mess with you. And it's very relevant to us today. Remember where we're at. David's life, he was anointed to be king by Samuel. He was just being a shepherd, being a faithful son to his father, serving sheep, defending sheep from lions and bears and tigers, oh my. At age 12, he becomes a musician for Saul because when you're tending sheep, you have a lot of time on your hands to learn an instrument. And so David learned an instrument while he's out in the middle of nowhere, singing praises to God, often by himself or maybe with just a small group of people as he cared for sheep. Verse 15, or in, at the age of around 15, most likely, he kills Goliath. He shows up at a battle to deliver. He's the, I've said this before, he's the Jimmy John's guy. He delivers meals for his brothers, sees this giant, just, you know, back-talking God and says, how can you guys put up with this? How can you allow this? And David steps in, takes his sling, kills Goliath. At 20, he becomes a commander in Saul's army, who was the current king. At 25, he's threatened by Saul because he begins to gain more power because David is now the truly anointed king and Saul is the illegitimate king because of his disobedience. He fights for the Philistines, which he shouldn't necessarily have done, and King Saul is killed, and his sons are killed by the Philistines, and so David flips around. At age 30, he's anointed king of Judah. At 37, he's anointed king of Israel. He wants to build a temple. He takes it easy. He sins with Bathsheba. He has a huge family mess, and now we're back to David being in his between 60 and 70 years old. He's depressed and quit. His son rebels against him, and his son is killed. David's not a good father. David gets restored. There's division continually in his kingdom from this point forward. And now what we're going to look at today is David decides to take an illegal census, an illegal count of the people of God. Listen, we can end up like this. Here's the beauty. How many of you believe that David is in heaven right now with God? I hope all of you would raise your hands. God made a covenant with David. David did some of the most wicked, horrible things you can imagine, and yet he is going to be in heaven. Can I just tell you, that bothers most people. Most people do not want a God that would forgive and have grace like that. Because they think they're so righteous. 
They count their sins, they count their righteousness, and they say, well, how I measure up, I'm way better than David, so I should be going to heaven. You see, the why behind that counting is the evil heart of pride. That we don't stand before God and give account. We stand before God and say, I have no account if you don't fill it. I'm empty. I'm bankrupt without you. And David continually did that in his life. He continually came back to how bankrupt he was without God in his life. And he, and he continually came back to obedience because he realized that by following the counting of the world and the counting of the enemy, Satan himself, it always ended in disaster. And that's something important for us to remember. So let's pick up the story. First Chronicles 21. Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. 2 Samuel 24 also has this passage, and this, how it's, this is how it starts. It says, the Lord's anger burned against Israel again, and he stirred up David against them to say, go count the people of Israel and Judah. So which is it? Did, did Satan stand up against Israel, or did the Lord's anger burn? It's both. It, it's both. And I love how God tells the whole story. God puts both of these stories in there so that we see how the world actually works. We can see how temptation and how problems and how, the, how our why deep down inside of why we want things to work out a certain way and why we will account and leverage our lives and our accounts in our time and talent and treasures to get what we want and how we do that. And God is looking and he's saying, look, my anger is burned against Israel. And remember what we talk about all the time in our church. For things to get bad for us, God does not have to send Satan after us. Satan is already after you. We have an enemy that wants to kill us every day, and the only reason you're not is because God's hand keeps it from happening. All God has to do for Satan to be able to go against the Israelites is this. I, I, can't, I can't do this anymore. That's all he has to do. And often God will do that to us to show us that the way we're counting is wrong. He will take his hands off. He will just take away the protection, take away the emergency fund, take away whatever it is, and he'll just step back and see what our response is. And that's exactly what happens here. Israel is in rebellion. There's division in the kingdom. It's all a mess. They said they wanted a king. They said they'd listen to a king. They won't listen to a king. We've read through this story. And now you have this thing where God is saying, you know what? I'm upset. Satan is called the liar and the accuser. Every day Satan is trying to accuse you, accuse me, accuse people. He's constantly going before God and making accusations. And he stirs up David and he says, go count the people of Israel and Judah. This doesn't seem like a very big deal to me. Does it to you? Like, go count people. Okay, like, ooh, Satan stirred David up to go count. One, two, three. Like he counted sheep. One sheep, two sheep, three sheep, fall asleep. No, I'm just saying, like, if you read this on the surface, you think to yourself, well, he's just counting. We count people all the time. We count things. Why is this such a big deal? Why is Satan involved in getting David to count, right? Like, and whenever I say count, I, I can't help but think of Sesame Street, right? Like the count, one, a two. Like I, the whole time I was preparing this message, I couldn't get the count out of my head. It was driving me nuts. 
Now you're going to have that. Sorry. Like every, now you're going to be stuck with it. Well, welcome to my world. So, so here you have this issue of why is this a big deal? And we're going to see this. We're going to see why this is a big deal. Because see, God often, in his sovereignty, will permit Satan to act, take his hands off. The result being a refining, a disciplining, and a purification of disobedient believers, or the glorification of obedient believers. Let me say that again. He will take his hands off so that it will be the purification of disobedient believers, or the disobedient, or it will be the glorification of obedient believers. Those are the two options. Let me tell you why I know this is the case. Because God, this isn't a new story. This isn't something new that we've heard. If you go back to a book that everybody loves to read that's so encouraging, the book of Job, right? Probably one of the earliest books ever written, scholars believe. Maybe before the Torah, possibly. But the book of Job lays this out very clearly how this works. It says this. There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of perfect integrity. God doesn't say that very often in Scripture, by the way. Matter of fact, like never. (laughs) He says this of Job, who feared God and turned away from evil. Job isn't being evil like the Israelites were. Not at all. He fears God. And when you read the story of Job, he's a very righteous man. It says, one day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? He said, from roaming the earth. That's what Satan does. Satan is constantly roaming around, seeing where he can get people to count his cost for what he wants them to do and forget God's cost for what God asked them to do. That's Satan's full-time job. That's all he can do. Because he can't control the ultimate outcome. All he can do is, is mess within God's sovereignty with stuff around us. And he says, Satan answered him and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears me or fears God and turns away from evil. So in the first circumstance, we see God disciplining the disobedient. He's allowing Satan to come in and do his work. But in this circumstance, we see God saying, have you considered Job? He's so righteous. He loves me so much. He is so good to his family. Have you considered Job? You see, Satan, you want to go pick on the weak. You want to go pick on the easy pickings. The disobedient are easy to pick on, right? Because they don't have God's protection. Those who don't know the Lord are easy pickings. God says, why don't you pick on my best and see what happens? See what I do. Job is the best. Why don't you try him out? So he does. And if you know the story of Job, it's awful. He loses his entire family, all of his wealth. He has three friends that are the worst friends in the world, right? However, if you read the friend's advice, most of you have probably given advice to people that those three friends gave to Job. And it's bad advice. And in the end, God says their advice was bad. Some of their advice seems good. The problem is... The way they were counting Job and the way they were counting what was happening to Job, it was the why. They said, it's because of your sin, Job. It's what you've done. And Job's like, I've confessed everything I know to confess. I don't know what, I know I'm a sinner. I don't know what else to do. And they just kept heaping it on him instead of encouraging him and pointing him to the hope that Job would have 
in God and in the resurrection someday. You see, that's what we can do. We can look at people and say, count, 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 count. And sometimes the right answer is heaven. Jesus coming again. I don't know why this is happening. Be faithful. Walk with him. I got nothing else. And, and don't you hate that answer? Let's just be honest. You don't like that answer. That's not the answer you want to hear. And it's not the answer that David wants to hear. We go on in the story. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, Go and count Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring a report to me so I can know their number. Job replied, may the Lord multiply the number of his people a hundred times over. In other words, Job says, may God fulfill the covenant he made to Noah, or Adam, Noah, and Abraham. Like, I'm all in on God giving us big numbers of God reaching people, of showing how great he is and how merciful and redemptive he is. David, I am with you on that. My Lord, the King, aren't they all my Lord's servants? In other words, why do we need to count? Does it matter? Then he goes on and he says, why does my Lord want to do this? Listen, Joab is not a great, Joab's one of these guys that when you read the story or the life of Joab, you kind of just are left scratching your head. Like, what? I don't know how to take this guy. He does really dumb things. He can be really emotional and wicked and fly off the handle. And on the next sense, he's doing this, which is incredibly like confronting and wise to say why. Why do you want to do this? He's questioning the king. You don't question the king. Don't don't ask why. No, no, no. Remember, Nathan the prophet didn't ask why of David. He just said, oh, do whatever's on your heart, David, because God must be with you. Because look at all the count. Look at all that God is doing for you, David. God just wants to bless you, David. You just do what you want. Then Then Nathan went home, had a vision. We looked at that. Then he came back to David and said, I was wrong. Sorry, God told me you'd know. He goes on and he says, why should he bring guilt on Israel? Joab knows that if we do this, if we take this count, if we use this accounting method, if we start measuring our lives and our world and the things around us by these principles, it is going to heap God's guilt and anger on people and we do not want that. Why do you want that? And what's amazing to me is that story after story in the Bible is God doing amazing things when the accounting doesn't work. Right? That's the entire story of Scripture, like Gideon. Starts out with 30,000, goes down to three, then he's got 300 troops left, and he beats 80,000 troops of the Midianites. And they don't even raise a sword almost. Like, they break some lanterns, and all the Midianites turn on each other and kill one another in the dark. It's like, what? God takes Abraham with one son and makes nations to this day that the majority of the world's population can trace their, their faith, their foundational faith, back to that man. One man, one son. And he didn't have that kid until he's in his 90s. You see... We love to give an account and say, see, we must be with God. Things must be working out well. Everything must be going, because look at the count. And sometimes God's sitting there going, no. 
No, it's not about that. It's about me. It's about why you're doing it. Why are you taking account? Are you taking account for the right reason? And we'll see that in just a second. Because in Exodus 30, here's what God said to Moses when they took account. Here's what God said to Moses about how to take a census and when to take a census. God was very specific. Joab knew the scriptures and challenged David on it. David, again, ignores the scriptures. And isn't that what we do? We love ignoring scripture. I do. That's why I don't like preaching through the Bible sometimes, because it doesn't allow me to ignore things. There are times when I just want to scratch doing this and just go to a topical sermon where I could just say happy things and we could get more people in the door. I'll just be honest with you. There are moments when I struggle deeply with that. And then there are moments like last weekend where I go to a wedding. And I'm at a wedding, and the groom, as I'm walking by him, the groom grabs me and pulls me over and pulls me in tight with his arm. And he's, by the way, he's a bodybuilder, so I couldn't get away. And he pulls me in, and he looks at me in the face, and he says, this day wouldn't have happened had it not been for you. Had it not been for you asking me why I lived my life and making me deal with who Jesus was and I ran from you and I ran from that message but God saved me when I went to Purdue. Married an incredible Christian woman who loves the Lord, one of Malia's good friends, my daughter's good friends, who has walked with God. And it was a Christian wedding. Jesus was on full display, and I'm sure his family was very uncomfortable with that. And sometimes I can get myself down because I'm not seeing the fruit. I'm not seeing things happen. Because I get to be the person that looks at him and says, you got to deal with this. Sorry. You got to. And they run. And my heart breaks. And I weep, and I wonder, God, what are we doing? The The accounting's not working. But God wasn't done with me yet at that wedding. (laughs) Because as I sat down and I was just amazed by that, I looked across the table and I saw another young man played on Clint's soccer team that I had multiple spiritual conversations with about Jesus, even invited him to try to do my roof with me when I failed miserably and hired professionals. And he came over to help and had a spiritual conversation with him there. And I sat down with him at the table and he began to tell me, he said, hey, I just thought you'd want to know I'm, I'm going to church again. Because my, my grandpa invited me to go. And I said, sure, grandpa. And he goes, I'm the only person under 50 in the whole church. And he goes, I love it. He goes, I play golf with the old guys on Thursday. Every Thursday I go play golf with them. It's amazing. He goes, but I'm struggling to read my Bible. And I said, well, can I give you some pointers on how to do that? He goes, I'd love to do that. And so I began to teach him. Right there, music blaring and pumping and we're screaming at each other trying to hear each other about how to read God's word, to find who God is, not a list of do's and don'ts. I walked away from that wedding just humbled. Humbled. That God is working, and I may not see it, but he's worth following. And so when God says this to Moses... He speaks to Moses about the people and he says, when you take a census of the people of God, of the Israelites, to register them, each of the 
men must pay a ransom for himself to the Lord as they are registered. Then no plague will come on them as they are registered. Why would God have them pay a ransom? Verse 16. Take the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will serve as a reminder for the Israelites before the Lord to atone for your lives. You're being counted right now as one of God's, but there was a great price paid for you to be accounted for. God is atoning you. He's covering your sins. That's what atonement is. He's covering over for you. And no, this money doesn't measure up, but it's a reminder that when you have to give up something that you've counted, something that's costly, something that costs you something, when you have to give that up, it's a reminder to you of what Christ did and what God does for us. And God is laying this out to Moses and he's saying, you have to continually help them to remember that there is a cost to atonement. There's a cost that has to be paid. And I'm allowing them to do it now, but isn't it great that in the new covenant and what Jesus did, he now counts us and he's counted the cost and he paid the atonement price for you and me so that we can be written in the, name, in the Lamb's book of life, not on a piece of parchment paper, forever. See, Jesus did the proper atonement. He paid the price. He just didn't look around and say, well, all this is mine and it's mine. See, Satan tempted him to do that in the wilderness, if you remember Jesus' temptation. And Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. David forgot what was written. He didn't care what was written in this moment. He just was coming, listen, tune in. He was coming to the end of his life wondering, after all the mess he's created, his family's a disaster, the kingdom's a mess, he's coming to the end of his life and he's asking, did it count? Did it count? And in his sin and in his desire to want to feel something and feel like it counted, he says, take this census. When, he, when God didn't say to do it, and God said, I'm the one that tells you when to count, when not to count, not you, when it comes to my people. He goes on and it says in Deuteronomy, remember, we've looked at this verse multiple times, and I'll keep coming back to it, that he told Moses, when you have a king, one day you're, the people are going to want a king. I don't want them to have a king, but I'm going to take my hands off. I'm going to let them have a king. Here you go, have a king. He says, however, that king must not acquire many horses for himself. Or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. For the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver or gold for himself. When he is seated on his royal throne, he's to write a copy of destruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. In other words, he was supposed to write it while the priests watched him to be sure he didn't make any mistakes. Because if you made a mistake, then it's no longer pure, the pure word of God. But the king had to actually write it himself. And then it says it is to remain with him and he is to read from it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of his instructions and to do these statutes. In other words, he is to keep it beside him so that no matter what happens, he can remember and find his hope and his joy in what God has called him to be and what God has called him to do regardless of the circumstances or the outcomes. 
Because if he doesn't, he's going to go running for horses and chariots. He's going to go running to make peace treaties with people where there shouldn't be peace. He's going to be running to store up stuff for himself so he feels better about himself and he feels better about coming to the end of his life instead of trusting God fully. And it's going to all become about himself, not about God. And that's exactly where David was. First Chronicles 21 says, Yet the king's order prevailed over Joab. When they had gone through all the whole land, they returned to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. It took them nine months, almost 10 months, to take this census. Close to a year. This wasn't a small counting. This was everybody would know David's counting. And anybody who knew the Bible, tune in, anybody who knew the Bible would be scratching their head going, uh, Exodus 30? Uh, what are we doing? Well, maybe God told David to take a census. I don't know. I guess here's my family. Here's how many men. Here's, here's what we got. Joab could have stood up to the king. Joab could have said, I'm not taking the count. Do what you want with me. See, that's what Daniel did when he was faced in Babylon with decisions like that. Daniel was good about looking at the king and saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the king but we're not going to eat your choice food. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the king, but I can't stop praying. Sorry, it isn't going to happen. And I'll suffer the consequences of that decision. But isn't it interesting that what you see in David's life is that the people he surrounded himself with, very few of them, if any of them, were willing to give their life. They wouldn't stand up. You want to know why? Because Joab's already been cursed by David. He's already done a bunch of stupid stuff. If he were to stand up to David now, what would happen to Joab? He's no longer a leader of any armies. Probably going to be stripped of his position. Probably going to be humiliated. So it's just easier to go along with the count than it is to actually stand up and say, I will not participate in this. I love you, David. You are my king. I'm not trying to rebel against you. I'm not rebelling against your authority. But there is an authority over you in Exodus 30, and I can't do what you're asking. Because I love God more than I love you. And I, I love you enough to confront you because God said, if we do this count, a plague is coming. And I want nothing to do with that. Joab didn't do it. He went ahead and spent the next 10 months almost of his life counting. Goes on in the story. It says this, Joab gave the total troop registration to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 swordsmen, and in Judea itself, 470,000 swordmen. But he did not include Levi and, the Benjamin, and Benjamin in the count because the king's command was detestable to him. If it's detestable to you, why are you doing it? If it's so detestable, say, I'm not doing it, and I'll suffer the consequences of not participating in that. Where are the people today that will do that? Where are the people today that will take a stand and say, that is detestable to the Lord. I'm not going to do it. Oh, well, that's not going to be very happy for you. That's not going to work out well. I, man, do you understand where that's going to lead in your life someday? And, yeah, I do. And I'm okay with it. I would rather obey God. I would rather listen to God. I would rather stand for the things of God. Not meanly, not arrogantly, and you better. And I'm going to overthrow you, David. No, just... I can't do that. I can't do what you're asking me to do because it's against what God would say to do. I, I can't do that. Well, I'm the king, or I'm, I can, I, I know. 
And we should be careful because sometimes, you ready for this? We can be people who are constantly fighting against authority and taking an account of it, right? I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm not going to do this. I'll show you. And we're just like David. And we think we're taking a stand for God when in reality we're taking a stand just for our own pride. Does that mean we don't talk about the truth? For example, the truth that COVID is an aerosol? Masks don't do much. Especially none of you have on N95s. But here we sit with a mask on. Why? Because I got pants on. That's why. I don't have to wear pants. I am free in Christ not to wear pants. I could walk around here without pants on. But you know what? I'd be arrested and thrown in jail, probably rightfully so. It wouldn't affect my salvation necessarily. But if they want me to wear, fine, I'll put on a mask. Whatever. But I'll also speak the truth. I'll talk about the reality of what we're doing and that we can't fix this problem. We're not going to fix the plague we're in. Only God can, which we're going to see in the story. In Numbers, Joab doesn't count the Levites and he doesn't count the Benjamites. I'm not sure why he doesn't count the Benjamites. Probably because that's Saul's family and Joab hated, they had a bad relationship with the Benjamites. But he doesn't count the Levites. That was actually biblical. Look at Numbers. Numbers 1 says this. But the Levites were not registered with them by their ancestral tribe. This is when God tells them to take a census. This is the census that Moses was supposed to take in Numbers. For the Lord had told Moses, do not register or take a census of the tribe of Levi with the other Israelites. Appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, all its furnishings and everything in it. They are to transport the tabernacle and all its articles to take care of it and camp around it. In other words, you are not to count the priests. It doesn't matter how strong they are or how weak they are. I can take one priest and turn the world upside down, which is what he did. He brought Jesus into the world as our high priest, and he turned the world upside down. So don't count the priests. It doesn't matter how many you got, how many you don't have. If I just have one righteous, I can save the world. So they're not to count the Levites. Joab knows this. I wonder if in Joab's mind, listen, are you ready for this? I wonder if Joab, in Joab's mind, he spent the last 10 months counting And he's thinking to himself, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't have to do this. This is against the Bible. But you know what? I'll prove something to God and I'll prove something to everybody else. (laughs) I didn't count the Levites. Isn't that what we do? That we'll be in the middle of our sin, in the middle of the mess, but we'll do something righteous so that we can be like, oh, I feel better about myself, pat myself on the back because at least I didn't count the Levites. Versus just confessing I shouldn't be counting in the first place. He goes on, says this. This command was also evil in God's sight. So he afflicted Israel. David said to God, I have sinned greatly because you have done this thing. Now please take away your servant's guilt. For I have been very foolish. Here's what happens. David gets the count. And it had to be elation for David when he heard, I have one, over 1.5 million soldiers. Oh, yeah, cha-ching. Man, I'm in a good place. I'm setting the kingdom up. When I die, I'm going to be given, here's 1.5 million soldiers. They're going to take care of you. Oh, I've done such a good job as the king. And then all of a sudden, the plague breaks out. And this is the beauty of it. See, God knows how to get your attention. 
See, God knows how to get the attention of a shepherd. You know how you get the attention of a shepherd? You go after the sheep. And when a shepherd hears and sees the sheep suffering, a shepherd responds. See, had God done it to David, David would have just been like before, depressed, and been like, yeah, I deserve it. Yeah, just take me out, God. Yeah, just take me down. I'm ready to go, blah, blah. That's what David would have done, right? Because that wouldn't have gotten his attention. Because David was a man of suffering. Yeah, let me suffer. I deserve it. But now you're healthy, you're fine, but the people around you are suffering because of your sin. Someone who loves the Lord and cares about people, that affects them. That hits them where it hurts. That's why interventions are so good when it comes to addictions. You have to do a family intervention. Everybody has to stop enabling and everybody has to come and say, this is how you've hurt us. This is how you're hurting yourself. This has got to stop. And that's what God does. He intervenes because he loves us and he loves people around us. And he just says, I've got to talk about this. I don't want, here it is. However, let's be honest. We don't listen without pain. Because when things are going well, right, you don't ask why things are going well. You just assume it's because I've been doing good things. I've been eating right, been doing the right thing, taking care of myself. I'm awesome. I mean, God must think I'm awesome because look at how great things are. Look, I've counted everything and it looks wonderful. Then we look at suffering and we're like, oh, I wonder what they did, i.e. Job's friends. Versus no, The premise is that we live in a world of suffering, and if we're not suffering, that's a miracle in this world. Do you realize it's a miracle that we haven't experienced a plague in 100 years till now? Do you realize how crazy, weird miracle that is? Many plagues tried to come through, smallpox and other things, and the Lord in his mercy gave us the wisdom to figure out how to stop them. And now we're finally facing something that we can't stop, and we're in panic mode, and the church is shutting down. The church of old used to care for the people with the black plague and died with them. And I can be just as guilty. I'm not throwing this on you or the church that's watching online. I'm saying we have to ask why we're doing what we're doing. We have to count the cost. We have to say what is the message of the scriptures and what is the message of the world we live in and the eternity we hope for. And if that's the true message, then I've got to strive for that and quit looking around me to count stuff. He goes on, it says, Then the Lord instructed Gad, David's seer, Go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I'm offering you three wishes. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) It'd be great if he was offering three wishes. Most people see God as a genie, right? God's going to give you three wishes if you're a good boy. What are those three wishes? You just rub it and God will give it to you. It's a lot of the message we hear today. No, he says three choices. In other words, God says, David, I'm going to invite you into the process of my sovereignty. What a mess that is. I don't understand how that works. Scholars don't understand how that works, but that's how it works. So God invites David into the mess and he says, choose one of them for yourself and I will do it to you. So Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says, take your choice. Three years of famine. They just came out of three years of famine. Remember that? We looked at that last week. They just came out of three years of famine because of their sin. David doesn't want to put the people back through three years of famine after he's already dealt with it. He doesn't want another three years, okay? And he says, three months of devastation by your foes with the sword. That means completely out of David's control. 
That means God takes his hands completely off, kicks the enemy in, says, have at it for three months, and I'll come back in three months. That's a scary proposition. Third choice. Or three days of the sword of the Lord. The sword of the Lord is called the sword of the spirit, the the word of truth. It's the scripture. It's, It's three months of remembering what God said not to do. And that you're in your predicament because you did what God said not to do. A plague on the land, he says, the angel of the Lord bringing destruction to the whole territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I should take back to the one who sent me, Gad says. David answered Gad, I am in anguish. Please let me fall into the Lord's hand because of his mercies are very great, but don't let me fall into human hands. See, David is still thinking about himself and he's like, let me fall in to the hands of the Lord. It's almost like he tries to give an answer, but he doesn't understand the three choices almost. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel and 70,000 Israelite men died. In other words, David made his choice. David said, let me fall into the hands of the Lord God. I can trust him. I can trust his punishment. I can trust his discipline. I can trust that, but I don't want to go into the hands of my enemies and I don't want three more years of famine. I don't know if David realized that by him saying, let us fall into the hands of the Lord and he's the leader, that he's leading everyone else to fall into the hands of the Lord. And that's what we're called to do as leaders. And you lead in some capacity in your life, whether that's the people at work, whether that's the people in your family, whatever it is, your friends, you lead on multiple capacities and it's our job to look at people and say, God is the best hands to fall into whatever the results. His hands are the best hands to fall into. You can trust him. Even if it looks bad, you can trust him. Then then God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But when the angel was about to destroy the city, the Lord looked, he relented concerning the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, enough, enough, withdraw your hand now. Do you recognize that you and I and every human being in this world deserve the sword of God? For how we've stood up to him, our arrogance, our pride, that we deserve far worse than a quick death. And God in his incredible mercy doesn't do that to everyone like he did in Noah's day. He reaches out and he says, I want to withdraw my wrath. And that's what Christ has done for us. By Christ taking our wrath for us, paying the atonement price by surrendering our lives and taking on his life, by doing that, what we've done is we've made a citizenship in heaven. It's no longer here. And now we know that God will withdraw his hand someday, but not yet. Because God still has to use his hand of judgment, otherwise we don't listen. There's still the curse of sin and death to get our attention. The angel of the Lord was there, standing at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. You see, God were grieved. He's grieved by watching the things happening to his people. He calls off the punishment. 2 Samuel 24, 16 says God was grieved. 
See, God has to do what's right. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt him to do what's right. He's emotional. That's where we get our emotions. When God does what's right, he's not in heaven going, got him, got him, got him. He's in heaven going, ugh. I have to, I have to, I'm righteous, I'm just, I'm loving, I'm merciful, I'm all these things, and I have to follow through on what's true because that's who I am. Even in his rebuke, God still shows love and mercy. 70,000 meant that 4%, 4% of the census of men died. 4%. Probably... 1% of the entire population died. When you take that maybe each family had about four kids and there were single men. And if you take that model, it's about a 1%, 1.2% kill rate. Do those numbers sound very familiar to you? We know COVID affects men more than it affects women. They have a higher death rate. That's just facts. And we know by the time this all shakes down, we'll probably have somewhere between 1% and 2% worldwide death. Is it enough to get our attention? Is it enough to wake us from our slumber, to, to surrender to God and be obedient to the things that don't make sense, like a king who doesn't store up wealth and have chariots and horses because he trusts God? I mean, that makes no sense to be a king and not have chariots and horses. You got wicked enemies all around you and you're not supposed to store up this stuff? Nope. That makes no sense. It does if you believe God. It does if you understand who he is. When David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between the earth and heaven, now God gives David the ability to see. With his drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem, David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell down with their faces to the ground. And David said to God, wasn't I the one who gave the order to count the people? I'm the one who has sinned and acted very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? My Lord, please let your hand be against me and against my father's family, but don't let the plague be against your people. We shouldn't be looking around and saying, yeah, we all deserve it. You deserve that. We deserve it. You deserve it. You deserve it. We should be looking around being broken for the reality that we're seeing happen in our midst recognizing that it's not their sin, it's our sin. It's my sin that's causing the mess and will continue to cause the mess until Jesus comes back and takes me out of this body of death and gives me a perfect body that doesn't do stupid things like David did. That's the message of our gospel. And David here shows his heart. He looks and he says, let me have the punishment. Let me take it. That's an incredible love. It's incredible compassion. It's a picture of Christ where Christ says, I'll take the punishment. But see, David couldn't take the full punishment. Only Jesus, the true king, could do that. And so David does what only he could do. He puts on sackcloth and acid, which we see him do over and over again in the scripture. Let me ask you, where are the Christians, where are the churches that are on their faces praying right now? Where are we? There's a plague in our land. Where, where are we? On our knees? Or are we just trying to protect ourselves constantly? Washing our hands. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. Since this pandemic broke out, one of the greatest things that I've been able to do, and I'm not saying this braggingly because I need to pray a lot more than I do, one of the most wonderful things is that every Tuesday and Thursday morning at 7, 10, 
Since this pandemic has broke out, Greg Botello and I, with a few other people that join in, have been praying through the Psalms all the way backwards, just praying Psalm after Psalm after Psalm. No bells and whistles. No, just God, this, this is you. This is what you say. And we do that for an hour almost every Tuesday and Thursday. It is rare that we miss. Because of circumstances in his life, circumstances that I see in, in my own life, just call for this. Because there's not another option. We got to quit counting and we just have to count on God. And say, God, you've got to break through. And I'm not going to live in fear because I know there's a home for me. I'm going to live with wisdom. But I, I am not going to live trapped. I'm going to live free in you. And David says, may it be on me. And would there be more of us with that kind of heart? Those of you who have had to serve in this pandemic and serve other people, whether that be in a restaurant or whatever your job is, and you have to meet face-to-face, -face, good job. Way to serve. Doesn't mean I'm putting down those that didn't. Some of you aren't allowed to meet, and you have to obey. But can I just tell you, the suicide rate's off the charts right now. Addiction is off the charts right now. People are hurting. Kids are miserable. This isn't working. Does that mean we just throw off the government? Nope, it doesn't. But it means you and I are the messengers of hope like David was to look at his elders, to look at his people and say, we're going to pray. We're going to get on our faces. We're going to cry out to God. We're going to go back and look in God's word at what God says. We're going to lay it out like God says to do it. So the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go and set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. David went up to Gad's commands, up at Gad's command, spoken in the name of the Lord. Ornan was threshing wheat when he turned and saw the angel. His four sons who were with him hid themselves. I mean, they're in panic mode. David came to Ornan, and when Ornan looked and saw David, he left the threshing floor, bowed down to David with his face to the ground. The threshing floor in the Old and New Testament is always a picture of judgment. Jesus said he's going to come back someday, and he's going to thresh the wheat, and he's going to, and he's going to sift out what is true and what is wrong. Okay? So God takes him to the judgment floor. Then David said to Ornan, give me this threshing floor plot so I may build an altar to the Lord on it. Give it to me for the full price so the plague on the people may be stopped. Remember, David was taking a census at zero cost, at zero price when they were supposed to be paying a price to take a census. And David knows, I can't just receive this from you. I have to pay the price so the plague on the people may be stopped. Ornan said to David, take it. My Lord, the king, may do whatever he wants. See, I give the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. King David answered Ornan, no, I insist on paying the full price. See, Jesus paid the full price for our sin. He didn't pay for just your sins in the past. He didn't pay for part of your sins. When Jesus died, he said, I'm willing to pay the full price to anyone who will come to me like David is getting ready to come to God and offer themselves, their body, Romans says, as a living sacrifice on the altar. I trade me for you. I surrender. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but you keep coming back to God. You keep offering yourself to him for his atonement. This is our message in scripture. King David answered, I insist on paying for it will not, for I will not take for the Lord 
what belongs to you or offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David gave Ornan 15 pounds of gold for the plot. He built an altar on the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. The burnt offering was the sin offering. The fellowship offering was to bring people in right relationship again with each other. So it was offering to God, love God, offering for the people, love people. It was both. Then he says, he called on the Lord and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of the burnt offering. Whoa! Fire comes down. Whoosh! <laughs> and David's like, God heard. He, he met me in this. And isn't it so true that we love to offer nothing and expect everything? Or we love to offer everything and expect God to do what we want. Instead of just saying, you're God, I'm not, I got nothing, I can't give you, here I am. Then the Lord spoke to the angel and he put his sword back in the sheath. At that time, David offered sacrifices there when he saw that the Lord answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. The tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the desert and the altar of burnt offering were at the high place in Gibeon. But David could not go there to inquire of God because he was terrified of the sword of the Lord's angel. Can I just tell you, there's a lot of us walking around terrified right now. We're building little altars to try to make things right when God offers himself and the tabernacle of a relationship with him through Christ. That he wants to put the Holy Spirit in us, not just in the Holy of Holies, that when we offer ourselves to him, he says he comes in and he fills us with his presence. And David was scared to death. I want to read for you. We're just going to read. I'm not even going to break it apart. I want you to hear these words from Paul. Romans chapter 8. Therefore, Paul spent seven chapters explaining the gospel, explaining the message, and here's what he says. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is, for those who believe in the Messiah, who is Yahweh, who saves because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. It doesn't mean we don't die. It doesn't mean we don't accept and love the law. It just means we aren't bound by it. What the law could not do since it was limited by flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the flesh like ours under sin's dominion as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement. The requirement for breaking the law, David, I told you, was going to be a plague. You broke the law of a census, and it said that there would be guilt and a plague would come. I just did what I said back in Exodus would happen. But it would be accomplished in us who did not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, think about the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, about the things of the Spirit. Please think about the Spirit in the midst of this mess and in the midst of the fear and the terror. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. We're already dead. What are you scared of dying for? <laughs> Listen, I was there. I had about a week and a half of terror when I couldn't breathe and dying. And I had to keep coming back to this every moment. And I'm grateful I had a doctor who kept bringing me back to this every moment. And he says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your model, bo mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Verse 15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption for whom we cry out, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. You don't need to doubt that. Even if you're going through discipline and sin and and punishment, you don't have to doubt that God is a good father. And if we're children, we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ seeing that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipations for God's sons to be revealed. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself would be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. We know that all things work together for good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus, or Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, he has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us like David was interceding for the people who were dying. He goes on and he says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish, or plague, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or even the angel of the Lord's sword, as it is written, written down, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, even though we're counted as sheep to be slaughtered, we're dying daily. In all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And can I tell you, David believed that till his dying day. It wasn't about all the good things David did, all the righteous things. It was David kept coming back to by faith believing somehow, some way God would save him. And somehow, some way God would use him to save other people. Look at this. Then the Lord answered prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel ended. God wants us to talk with him. He wants us to tell him how grateful we are. He wants us to have hope in him, to find our joy in him. And can I tell you, that is being stolen every day. There is an enemy who wants you to have no hope, no joy, no life. And God says, I want you to have all those things, and I want you to point people to where they really are, not the fake stuff that we count around us, because all this is passing away. It doesn't mean we don't count. Just don't count the way God says not to. You have to ask yourself why you're counting. This week, we met to talk about the money for, that was given from the chouse. We'll be presenting that to you all, not right now, but soon. And as we asked ourselves that question of why, why do we do this? Why, why, why? That was the thing that drove our decisions that we'll present before you. It was asking and preparing and saying, God, this isn't our money, it's yours. This is yours to do what you want, but we want to be wise. You've given us an account. (laughs) What do you want us to do with it? That's the proper way to take an accounting. 
Not to order people around, but to involve the body and talk about why we make the decisions we make and invite people to challenge those, to talk about those, and to celebrate those when we do it for the right why. That's why we love celebrating people getting out of debt in our church. Because there's something freeing about saying, I'm free. (laughs) It's a beautiful picture. But it's also why we don't tell people you're an awful human being if you're in debt. Because we're all in debt to God. We owe him a debt we can never pay. Yet he pays for us. Let me ask you this morning. What are you counting and why? What are you counting on and why? And is it because of who God is and your love for him that you're taking an account and your love for his people? If it is, smile. Because, man, you are in a good place. And if it's not, pray. God will answer you. And get up from that moment in full hope of Romans 8 to know there is no condemnation for those who come to God and repent. And he listens and he prayers and and he answers prayer and he says that he will stop the plague and the things that plague us in our life and only he can. We might be able to alleviate some temporary stuff, but there's just something else coming. Can I just tell you, if you don't know him like David knew God, I pray that you would. I pray that you would surrender. If you do know him, then I would ask yourself this question that I said before, what are you counting and why? And I hope that you're counting God himself, his character, his attributes. I hope that when you read the word, you're not like David and you just ignore things, but you look at the word and you wrestle with it and you look at him and say thank you and you smile for his statutes, his ordinances and his laws because they're beautiful and wonderful and glorious. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I just confess my desire to want to count the wrong things. To to want to measure up to you or to measure up to the things of this world or to measure up to some standard of righteousness that I set for myself or that I think others should be. And Lord, I just ask your forgiveness. Lord, show me those areas. Bring people, unlike Joab, bring people into my life that would confront those issues. I thank you for giving me people in my life who confront me on those things. Our church staff, my wife, family members, friends who are willing to look at me and challenge me. Lord, thank you for softening my heart when so often it's hard. And Lord, I say the same prayer for those who are listening. And Lord, if there's Anyone out there who doesn't know you, I pray today would be the day they finally break down their hard heart and they allow you to bring your love and change them from the inside out through the power of your Holy Spirit. That they, like David, would make an altar in this moment, in their room where they're at, listening to this podcast in this room, that they would just make an altar and go before you and know that you love them, that you died for them that they can place their hope in you and that you want to use them in the lives of people even when it seems that people aren't listening and people are dying and there's a mess. Thank you for your hope. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your joy and these reminders that keep pointing us to the ultimate issue, which is you returning 
But in the meantime, I pray that we would love others and tell them about you. That we would show them these truths that we have and we would help them to count the cost of their life so that they don't have to stand before you and give an account one day, but instead they can stand before you and say, it's all on your account because you did it all, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.